For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines. And they struck hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with holes, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to their, uh, to their own fingers, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled, and each one is brought low to not forgive them. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The early looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of man shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low, against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and then against all the oaks of Bashan, against all lofty mountains, and then against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, and then against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and then against all the beautiful craft, and the holiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of man shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols shall utterly pass away, and people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Stop regarding man in whose nostril is breath, for of what account is he? This is the word of the Lord. So my sons, they go to a school and they teach virtues. One of my sons came home, Benjamin, one day, my oldest, and said, hey, Dad, I got to tell you about what happened at school today. My teacher looked at me and said, hey, Benjamin, I want you to go back to the back of the room And I want you to open up the dictionary, and I want you to get ready to read out a word for us. So Benjamin said, okay, and he he scurried back, and he got ready in position. And uh, she said, okay, now this is a word. I just want you to think about your behavior. Go ahead and read this word. The word is hubris. Now Benjamin uh, looked at her uh, immediately and quickly said, oh, I don't have to look up that word. My dad's already told me what it means. It means somebody that has excessive pride, almost to like godlike status. And she looked at him like, Wow. Well, it's good that y'all have had that conversation. <laughs> but to be honest with you, Benjamin, you know, father is, is always a good example to his son uh, and sometimes of bad things. And so I know that Benjamin uh, and my sons will probably struggle with a lot of the same sin tendencies that I have. Uh, so for, for my growing up, I still remember my mom chasing me through the house with the book of Proverbs. And she used to have an arsenal of Proverbs aimed directly at pride. And it didn't seem to matter what I did, but it always came back to the fact that I had a proud little heart. Uh, so she would read stuff like Proverbs sixteen eighteen: Pride goes before destruction and haughtiness before the fall. But let me ask you this morning, as you think about 
pride, and as you think about the sin of pride, uh, would, you, uh, would you agree that we often overlook or ignore the naughtiness of haughtiness? I mean, have you noticed that? I mean, we can, we can pick it out from a mile away, but so often it doesn't seem to be like one of those sins that we need to deal with. See, we don't seem to fear the pervasiveness of the problem of pride or its destructiveness. I don't know that we necessarily believe that it is as bad as the Word of God says that it is. Well, to paraphrase Charles Spurgeon, we know that pride is not a sin that is alien to all of us, but is probably indigenous to every one of us. He says it this way, and I had to paraphrase uh, what he said, so take it, take it like this. Uh, Charles, said, Charles Spurgeon said something like this, pride is a weed that will grow anywhere and everywhere. It grows on a rock as well as in a garden. Pride will grow in the heart of an IT technician as well as the president, the college student as well as the professor, and in the pew at least as well as in the pulpit. See, pride is a human problem. But it's not just about people who walk with swag or talk with a brag. Like, pride, according to the Bible, is something deeper. And see, we're back in our Looking at Jesus series in Isaiah where we're going to be looking at this topic today. Now, I've told you before that Isaiah breaks up his book as a, basically a depiction of what the coming Messiah who was going to save Judah would be like. He was going to be a king, a servant, and a conqueror. All three of those together. Well, we know that Judah experienced 52 years of prosperity under the reign of Uzziah up to the time of the writing of Isaiah and the experiences he wrote about Uh, His life and death, that of Uzziah's, set the context for the launching of Isaiah's ministry, which would see great destruction. And see, Uzziah, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And not only that, we're told that he did other things. Uh, So he fortified uh, the, the buildings. He fortified Judah with walls and towers. He amassed wealth, and he reminded them of King Solomon. He was a great king. Now, just a reminder... Pride grows best in the soils of security, prosperity, and success. And that's where pride grows best. And we're going to see that here this morning. See, we we tend to become too confident in ourselves and forgetful of destruction when things are going well. In fact, when things go well, we tend to get comfortable. Now last week, Isaiah gave us a spectacular vision of what the day of the Lord, that last day, would be like for the nations. But in our text this morning, it's going to remind us that it will be the worst day ever for those who are proud in Judah. Now here's our big idea this morning, something that we all need to have on the forefront of our minds, and that's this. There is only one place to hide on the last day. There is only one place to hide on the day of the Lord. Only one place. And we're going to see this in a a couple of ways, but first... Notice in verses 6 to 9 that Isaiah says pride is a bad kind of humble. Pride is a bad kind of humble. Now catch this. Isaiah, uh, he just told the future about how incredibly bright it was for the nations in the first four verses. But take note here of how shockingly different this day, this ideal end awaiting the, the nations looks in comparison to the real state of affairs in Judah in verses 6 to 9. And here's what he says. Look there with me. Isaiah 2, verses 6 to 9. The word of the Lord says this. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of the fortune tellers like the Philistines. 
And they strike their hands with the children of foreigners. Uh, Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end of their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Now, did you see how Isaiah actually contrast the future exaltation of the nations to expose the horror of Judah's present humiliation. There's a compare and contrast that's going on here to emphasize this. See, Judah would have been shocked by this dramatic reversal. Everything looks so backwards. It's, it's not the way that they would think that it should happen. It should be opposite. But God... Here, we are told, looks way different in what he communicates and what they expected. See, God, we were told, will, expect, will accept the worship of the nations, but he will reject his people, Judah. The nations, they are going to run to Mount Zion to hear from the word of the Lord about their glorious future, but God rejects his people, Judah. The nations, they, they, run, they will run to Mount Zion to hear from God about their glorious future. And, and here we find that Judah actually runs away from Mount Zion to the Philistine fortune tellers for their futures. The nations will receive peace, but Judah is stockpiling weapons. They are locked and loaded for war with their horses and chariots. And the nations, they will worship their creator, but God, or but Judah... Judah worships gods that they have created with their own hands. Do you you see it? God created Judah to look like heaven on earth. A picture of who God is. And yet, in the midst of their prosperity and security, they drifted so far from God that Isaiah interrupts this list of offenses. And catch this, he drops one of the most devastating lines in all of the Bible about God's people when he speaks to God about Judah, and he says this, he says in verse 9, do not forgive Judah. Tell me that's not the, the worst word you could possibly imagine hearing about someone speaking to God about you. And here it is the prophet Isaiah speaking of Judah. Your sins are so bad, he is saying to God, don't forgive them. Now it seems, it sounds in context like Isaiah is even more upset with his Jewish brothers than God is, if that's possible. But we know, don't we, brothers and sisters, that God's mercy is greater and that Jesus is greater than Isaiah because Jesus' words from the cross to his enemies were what? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And do you see it? And so here we see from Isaiah that they are not worthy of forgiveness, and then Christ comes and says there is forgiveness to be had. But why is Isaiah so upset with his fellow Jewish brothers? I mean, as you read through this, this might look a little bit like a random shopping list of offenses that are really unrelated items, right? I mean, you've probably been to the grocery store to pick up things before that don't quite go together. Like maybe your wife has said, hey, could you pick up some eggs, batteries, a little bit of arsenic, and um, I don't know, some cleaning stuff for the bathroom. And you're like, okay, the eggs and the arsenic, I'm hoping those aren't going together, right? Like unrelated, they don't go together. And maybe when you're reading through these, these offenses in the first three verses, that maybe you're thinking these don't really look like they go together? Are they really unrelated? 
Are these the same thing? Are they one thing? Well, catch this. I believe in context, Isaiah tips the hat that these four things that he lists are actually connected. They're all connected and they go together. Uh, The reason I say that is you'll notice that in verse 9, notice in verse 9, after listing those offenses, he says, so, a word that tips us off that this is the result, and I believe it's the result of all four of these things, it's the result of those fortune tellers and the, the greed and the armies and the idolatry that they've been engaged in. He says, so, as a result of these things, man is humbled and each one is brought low. I don't know about you, but I tend to think of humility as a good thing. My mom in the Bible taught me that. But it's clearly bad here because notice that Isaiah says, they have humbled themselves, don't forgive them for what they've done. So whatever this humility is, it doesn't look good. Here's what I think is going on. Isaiah says each of these demonstrates ways that Judah humbled themselves by their proud confidence in something other than their God, and they are less human for it. See, pride is the worst kind of humility. It is the worst kind of humility in the Bible. It it takes you lower than you know. But let's make clear what's going on here so that we understand what pride is. It, It might be one of those things that you hear, and you're not thinking about it in the categories that God speaks about it. So how should we think about pride according to the Bible? I think that what we tend to do is think about pride as something that is privatized, right? So if somebody is proud, it's because an individual thinks about himself or herself more than they ought to. It's really about them and the way they see themselves. This week I was uh, at the the doctor's office, one of the doctor's appointments we had, and I was with a medical assistant and he he was bragging. He was bragging about his boss. And he said, you know, my boss is a Rhodes Scholar who got dual degrees in medicine and law from Harvard. He is the smartest man I know, travels all over the world to to give talks. People want to hear from him. And yet he would never tell you about how intelligent or successful he is. I have another doctor I work with. He would drive all the way across the world to tell you exactly who he is. That's pride, right? And a lot of times that's the way that we think about pride. Pride is about how we view ourselves and how we want others to view us. But catch this. Pride, according to the Bible, doesn't just describe the way that a person views himself or herself. It's not that they just see themselves as more than they should, not according to the Bible. According to the Bible, pride is actually a relational term. Pride is a relational term. Uh, Pride is not just thinking too much of yourself, it's also thinking too little of God. That means that pride is a spiritual issue, an issue of faith, where we are, it speaks of where we are putting our heart's ultimate confidence and trust. So when the Bible says that you're proud, it's speaking about the way, not just that you see yourself, but the way that you see yourself before God. See, Judah, they had pride or self-confidence that displayed itself in a variety of ways. Their confidence was anywhere, almost everywhere else other than in their God. They were trusting in the fortune tellers. They wanted a better future than what God offered them. The future that we just heard about in the first four verses. They said, well, maybe the fortune tellers have something better for us. 
I think it's interesting here that we, we see that they are looking to someone else for a better future. Uh, I hope that you're not looking to any of a number of things for a better future than what God has for you. I mean, we have all kinds of options today, right? You got horoscopes, Charlie Charlie, the eight ball, and I hope you understand that none of those are going to shake out a better future for you than God. God has an amazing future for us. Just read His Word. But I think there's something perhaps more here. Could it be that the reason that He begins with the fortune tellers speaks to the way that their shift in confidence with God actually began with the confidence and trust that they put in the future that God promised for them? Is that where it all started? Did it start with, we don't believe you have the future for us that you've promised us anymore, and now I'm not so sure I understand everything around me. It could just be that maybe that's what's happened to them. Maybe that's what's happened to you today. You've forgotten, lost sight of the grand future that God has for you. Our lives are not better for it when we forget how glorious the future is that awaits us. But then notice not only fortune tellers, they they placed their trust in the money that they hoarded so that they didn't need to depend on God for their daily bread. They stockpiled weapons. You'll remember that David in the Psalms, Psalm 20 verse 7 says, Some trust in horses and chariots, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Looks like Judah said, well, we'll take the chariots. See, we can see those chariots We can't see God. Do you see how these connect to idolatry? Their their confidence, their trust, their future, it's placed in these things that are before their eyes. And it's not really a, a big step to go from there into crafting gods with their own hands that look more like their imaginations. See, Judah trusted idols they created rather than their creator. Very similar to the other things that we put our confidence in. You might not have thought of yourself as an idolater, but historically, uh, you've probably heard many pastors say that our hearts are idol factories. In other words, we in our hearts tend to put our confidence and trust in almost anything other than God. Speaking of this in Counterfeit Idols, Tim Keller said something helpful defining idols. He says, basically, you know, you you don't have to burn incense to a little statue of a Buddha to be an idolater. He says, essentially, uh, an idol is really anything that is more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your your heart and imagination more than God. Anything that you seek to give you what only God can give is an idol. And if you connect this with what I think Greg, uh, Greg Beal rightly says that you become what you worship, you know that you're in a dangerous place if you turn your worship from the Creator God to the created thing. That is a massively bad deal, right? It does something to us, says something about us that is not as good as what God has for us. This is why Isaiah says in verse 9 that idolatry is as much about the dehumanizing of humanity as it is about the degoding of God. We are less human when we do not worship God as we ought. Now don't miss this. Biblical pride, the more that we pursue it, the less human we become. Biblical pride makes us less human. See, confidence in God and the dignity of human, they rise and fall together. Maybe you haven't thought about that. But the less that we have confidence in the greatness of God, 
the less that we are going to become human as God made us to be. We need not lose a vision of a glorious God. If we lose a vision of a glorious God, our problem is not just that we have robbed God of His glory. That's true. But the reality is we have robbed ourselves of the value and dignity that God has given us as creations and creatures uniquely made in the image of God. So when we aren't worshiping God as we ought, we are less for it every time. Now you might say, well, do you have a practical illustration of this? Absolutely I do. This is where child child sacrifices come from. Whether you're talking about the child sacrifices that were offered to the ancient god Malak, or you're talking about the present-day sacrifices that are offered at parent, uh, uh, Planned Parenthood, either one of those are prime examples of the reality that when we lose sight of who God is, the dignity of humanity sinks really quickly. I mean, how could we ever justify killing a baby created in the image of God? See, if God is, is high and lifted up in our hearts, how do we do something like that? Maybe you've done that in the past. And maybe you're, you're feeling horrible right now about that. Let me encourage you. There's grace for repentant sinners. But do you see the horror of killing a baby in light of who God is? And, and what for? What are the reasons that we often get for why a woman ought to be able to do that? Well, aren't they really just pictures of things, idols they worship? Right? Maybe it's because they want to be able to fulfill sexual appetites without responsibility for new life. Or or to gain more glory at work and not be held back. Or or to make more money to make you more secure. Do you see it? Like in all of these reasonings and rationales, these are child sacrifices to the gods of sex, fame, and prosperity. And all the while, we, we have lost a vision of who God is and lost a vision of who we are and our value. In sexuality, it works the same way. You know, who, who controls your sexual appetites? Is it you and your vision for yourself or God's vision for you? you know, would you change your God before you would change your appetites? Eventually, if you don't turn to God with, with all of your desires and, and submit those to Him, your identity will begin to become shaped by those sexual appetites and you will throw parades and identify as whatever your sexuality is. You know, like gay, uh, bi, transgender, or how about this, Christian, gay Christian. Why? Because you become what you worship. See, friend, you are so much more than your job or your sexuality. If you are in Christ, Christ is where your identity is hid. It is hidden in Him and Him alone. And there is nothing else, no adjective that you add to that to make it more glorious or valuable or meaningful. Christ is all in all. So you were made to image the creator of the universe. Why would you settle for anything less? Let me ask you a Christian this morning. How do you go about shutting down the God factory of your hearts? How do you fight that? But if we know that all of us struggle with this, this tendency to make idols out of our desires and the things that we want, and those things begin to shape us way before we begin to fashion them, then, then how do we shut that down? See, I want to bolster your confidence in God in a number of ways. I, I think that you should bolster your confidence in God so that these little gods that we build for ourselves look meaningless and worthless as soon as they drop off the assembly line, right? 
So how do you do that? I believe you can bolster your confidence in God by joining a local church. The pillar and buttress of truth. As other Christians surround you with who God really is, week after week, you hear the Word of God proclaimed to you, reminding you of what God really looks like. You sing songs praising the true God for His true attributes. You constantly are confronted week in and week out with your glorious God. Friends, you need that. You need that every day. You need that every week. You need the people of God. And that will come That is a people who will come after you when your confidence wanes. Put sin to death. It's another way. Because sin's ultimate aim is to distract you from the king of glory and have you settle for something less. Or or what about this? Third, watch out for yourself and others in prosperity and suffering. Prosperity and suffering both can be dangerous places. Are you keeping watch on your brothers and sisters in Christ as they go through suffering and prosperity and drawing their attention, driving their attention towards God. Make sure you don't misunderstand the promises of God. Have you ever been victim of that? Have you gone to work in your little idol factory because you misunderstood a promise of God? You thought that God promised you something that His Word never promised you? You had expectations that were not met, that God did not set? And when those things did not come through... You turn to making other little gods that were better, that fit the image that you wanted rather than the image of God that we find clearly revealed in the Bible. I mean, I do that all the time. Man, God does something, I don't like it. I'm like, well, I'm not sure you kept your part of the deal. He's like, that wasn't part of the deal, right? So maybe you have some promises that you've just misunderstood. You know, for instance, God didn't promise you that you would not suffer in this life. He actually said that you would. He did not promise that your your wife would not leave you or that your friends would not die or that you you would drive a Bentley or that you would have kids or that you would never be underemployed in this life. He didn't say that. But He did promise that Jesus is coming back and that He's going to set all things right. That's a promise you can bank on. So brothers and sisters, we need to be looking with our hope in the right places. But there's a second thing that we see in our text this morning. And that's that the proud experience the true humility. They experience true humility in the presence of God. The proud experience true humility in the presence of God. Not the humility that that they have right now when things seem to be going well. See, Judah's confidence, it shifted from from God during the reign of Uzziah uh, and, and to this world. And Isaiah attempts to correct their vision. And the way that he does that is with this terrifying splendor of God's majesty showing up. Now don't miss this as you read. Isaiah, he repeats two things three times. You're going to see it throughout. He says this. He says in verses 10, 19, and 21, first, the splendor of God's majesty will be revealed. And then second, the proud will run and hide before the terror of the Lord. God's glory shows up. People run. Now notice first, the splendor of God's majesty, it will embarrass what we take confidence in. We see that in verses 10 to 16. Look there with me. Isaiah 2, verses 10 to 16. Here's what he says. It says, enter into the rock and hide in the dust. 
From before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty, the haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted, and it shall be brought low against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, and against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower and against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish and against all the beautiful craft should be lifted up against all these. God's patience, it allowed Judah to exalt all kinds of natural and man-made things above God in their hearts, right? They They were elevating all sorts of things to a place that really was for God. And created things began to look big as the Creator seemed to look so small until, right? Until God shows up in the splendor of His majesty on His day. I love this phrase. Gary Smith, in his commentary, says the splendor of His majesty is really an attempt to describe the the visible appearance of the glorious presence of God in all of His exalted fullness. What a vision, right? Unadulterated God, the veil gets pulled back and you see Him full of glory. That's what that phrase means. In other words, God here is not pictured as a monster. But those who have not trusted in God are terrified. And verse 12 actually calls him Sabiat Yahweh, or the Lord of hosts. See, when the the king of heavenly armies, heavenly hosts, arrives, everyone drops their slingshots. Do you see it? Like, we've been fighting, we've been rebelling. Like, I can see this is over now, right? So, there, any imagined power to fight God is shown to be just that, an imagination. Everything else looks small now before the splendor of God's majesty. And did you see what the proud had put their trust in? The first four of those things that he lists actually show that they put their hearts in natural objects. And it shows how men's hearts, we, we do unnatural things with natural objects, like the glorious cedars of Lebanon, you know, which are known for, for being glorious in their heights and beauty. And the oaks of Bashan that were used and crafted to make idols. They also look to the mountains and the hills, which were places where they believed the, the gods lived and they worshipped there. All these natural things were used for unnatural purposes, not the way that God intended. They put confidence in all those things more than they put their confidence in God. And we also see that they had man-made things that they put their confidence in with those last four things. Uh, They say that they put confidence in, and I believe these are real things, uh, they put pride in their fortified cities and their tall towers and their large ships and their beautiful craft. All the works of their hands they had great confidence in. But verse 22 even adds that they fear man more than they fear God. And God even put breath in the nostrils of the creature that they're worshiping. So even He is a creature that has been created by God and yet they have turned to worship Him as well. 
This is how sinful the people of God have become. But did you see how the splendor of God's majesty dwarfs and destroys anything they trust with their future apart from Him? Did you see that? God shows up all of those issues that seem so big to you right now. Maybe the things that are making it hard for you even to listen to God's Word in this moment. Those things will be made to shown for what they really are, which is so small. Christian, I just want to ask you this morning, what about you? Are you putting your confidence in something today that you should not? Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying this morning that you shouldn't get a job that, that pays enough to provide for your family. I'm not saying that you shouldn't save for retirement. If you have a motorcycle, I'm not saying that you shouldn't wear a helmet because, you know, God is sovereign and in control and all. I don't want to put too much confidence in horses, chariots, or motorcycle helmets. That's not what I'm saying. No, I'm saying that here what we we need to be considering is this. Are we putting undue confidence in something that is controlling our lives other than pursuing God? A really good test for that this morning is to ask yourself, what in my life could I not be happy without? In other words, if God were to take this thing away from me, if He were to rip it out of my clutches, I don't know that I would love God anymore. Like, what is that for you? You know, it could be a good thing. I know that you've probably heard before uh, the saying that good gifts make bad gods. Could be all kinds of good things that if God were to take away, like, you just would not be happy with God anymore. But as the kids these days say, we need to be woke to what stokes us. We need to be awake to what's going on in our hearts and where we are placing our confidence even as believers. See, whatever you put your confidence in will set the trajectory of your life, and not just this life, but the life that is to come. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for from it come the springs of life. So when the rug of your life gets pulled out from under you, what do you reach for? When the rug of this life gets pulled, stripped out from under your feet, you're not ready, and you're grabbing for something, what is it that you reach for? Do you reach for Christ and His people, or are you looking for other things? Do you pray? Do you confess your sins? Do you read God's Word? Or do you quit serving others? Do you isolate yourself? Here's my guess. When the rug gets pulled out from you, I believe that you reach for what you've already been holding to. You hear me? Like You might think like, oh, the rug got pulled out and I reached for this. Man, if the rug hadn't been pulled out, like I, I would have never reached for that, but God did this. It's His fault, really. It's just all that was there. Well, if it's all that it's there, that means that's all that was in your heart already. And that's what you grabbed for. You weren't grabbing for the hand of God. See, that's when you find out if it will hold you fast or not. When the rug gets pulled out and you reach, and that thing either lets you drop or go. It's kind of like Wally Coyote, right? When he's holding onto the rope. Right? The roadrunner chases him. He's holding on to the rope. He looks up and it's not attached to anything. So when you lose your job, when your boyfriend dumps you, when you get sick, when a spiritual leader falls to sin, when hurricanes rage or people you love die, do you give up on God? 
Do you quit praying, reading God's word, attending church, giving generously, living a holy life, protecting what you watch on TV, and looking to Christ, who is the image of the invisible God? Because catch this, beauty rest for sleep, Netflix, Charles Schwab, and airbags, they're good things, but they cannot save you or give you lasting hope. See, I can promise you this, when Jesus returns, we'll know what or who we've been trusting in And those not trusting in Christ, we are told in verses 17 to 21, they have nowhere to hide. There's nowhere to hide. Look there with me in verses 17 to 21. This is one of really the scariest scenes in the Bible. There we're told that the proud can't get low enough to escape God on that day. And what a terrifying vision we see here. Uh, Look in verses 17 to 21 again at, at what he says. Verses 17 to 21, the word of the Lord says this, And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idol shall utterly pass away, and people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty when He rises to terrify the earth. And in that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the, wall, the rocks and to the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty when He rises to terrify the earth. See, Judah, they spent their whole lives trying to exalt other things above their God. But on that last day, They can't get low enough to get away from God. See, they misinterpreted God's patience, I believe, as disinterest. And God's seeming lack of response here, brothers and sisters, it's more about timing than consent. God will act. He will bring about justice. And catch this. On the last day, they try to hide in the clefts of the rocks and the dust from which God made them when confronted by the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of their majesty. I wonder if when they're running to the dust, if they're thinking like, man, can I, can I get a redo, right? Like from creation, when they made man out of dust, can I get a redo? I, I need to undo this, but there's none, uh, there is no undoing this. See, the visible side of God's power and beauty appears. But Judah, uh, while they should be marveling and worshiping, instead they're running for their lives. Do you see it? It shouldn't be like this. But why? It's because when God shows up in all of His glory, they run like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, ashamed, ashamed and scared of God's judgment. And they drag their swag into the cleft of the rock before the splendor of God's majesty. Their unwitting, proud humility will be replaced with humility that sees God rightly exalted and themselves quickly descending lower and lower. They recognize their sin guilt and that everything that they put confidence in is is powerless on that day. And they know that God will rightly judge them. See, there really is something terrifying about the beauty of the Lord and all of its protection and perfection and power. There's something amazing and startling about it. And they know clearly as God's glory becomes visible, what's always been true, that there is no other God other than Him. They know that God will rightly judge them, that He is just. And there really is something terrifying about the beauty of the Lord uh, elsewhere in the Bible, isn't there? I mean, you'll remember there are others who have sought to see the beauty of the Lord. You remember Moses and Elijah 
wanted to see God. How many of you think you're as holy as Moses and Elijah? All right. Moses and Elijah, prophets of God, who led major movements of God for the people of God, who were revered in the history of God's people. Those two men, the men, Mount of Transfiguration, were you there? I mean, these are great guys. And in the midst of that, we're told that they wanted to see God face to face. And you know what happens when God comes before both of them? He says, I need to hide you in the cleft of a rock because you cannot look on my glory. You can't handle it. And so when you come before me, it needs to be in a shielded presence where you're in the cleft of a rock, where I hide you and protect you from the glory that comes before you. That's why the people of God, as they worship God in the temple, needed a veil to separate them from the feet of God because they couldn't handle viewing the very feet of God in the presence of the temple. It would undo them. And here we see Judah needed to be saved on the final days as much as the nations did. See, they, they too uh, were not able to come on Mount Zion without God doing something to change their future. Of course, Paul tells us in Philippians 2 that this great day that is spoken of is actually speaking of Jesus on the final day when Jesus will return. You remember, He was humbled through His life and death for us, and then He was exalted in Philippians 2 and given a name above every name at which we are told that on the last day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Do you see it? The swag is bending. The brag is confessing. It is all about Jesus on that day. And on that day, we see Christ high and lifted up as He ought to be. And let me just encourage you this morning as you read this. If you have not put your faith in this Christ who died for you, humbled Himself for you, and was raised from the dead, and sits at the right hand of the Father, if you've not put your faith in Him today, then you need to hide. And there's only one place to hide. There's only one place for us to go, and that is Jesus Christ Himself. So if you're not a Christian, don't leave here this morning without putting your faith in Jesus. I've had too many people, unbelievers, leave here, not put their faith in Jesus, and die and go before the presence of God without Christ. Don't let that be you today. But I recently had a good brother who I was talking about this text with. And it was really a good conversation. He, he asked me a great question. He said, hey, you know, um, is it, is it G- like this last day that we just read about in Isaiah? Isn't it a lot different in the New Testament? I said, well, what do you mean? Like, what New Testament verse are you thinking about? And he said, I don't know, like one of them. I said, oh, you mean like Revelation? And he goes, yeah, that, yeah, that one. I said, and I kept on. I said, like where Jesus comes in all of his radiant glory and descends on earth. Yeah, that one. And then a sword pops out of his mouth and he judges the nations. He goes, wait a minute. No, I don't think that's the one I was talking about. You know, sometimes I think that what we do is we don't read the New Testament and we sort of just give it the label of grace and we don't recognize that Jesus is a God of judgment and that justice will be done. And we are told that really what we are called to do is either to hide today or you will not be able to hide on the last day. Did you know that? Yeah, the Bible tells us that. It says you can either hide today or you will not be able to hide on the last day. That's the message of the New Testament. That's the message of the Old Testament. That's God's message for us. Now, where do we hide today? Well, we get a great text in Colossians 3, 1-4, which tells us, 
There we see that we can either hide in Jesus today or we can try to hide from Jesus on the last day. But in Colossians 3, 1-4, Paul says to those who have put their faith in Christ, he says this, and listen closely to what he says. This is good. This is encouraging, saint. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, those of us who have been, we have been putting our faith in Christ, he says, if you have been raised with Christ, in other words, God has already exalted us in Christ, Far above any proud notions that we can conceive of for ourselves. Like you can't lift high enough for what God's done for you. But then he says this. Seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things on the earth. That's what Judah was doing. For, he says this, you have died and your life is hidden right now. With Christ in God. Where's Christ right now? In heaven. You see it? Like you're already, there's a sense in which you're already there by faith. Already exalted far above anything that you can imagine. And then verse 4. When Christ who is your life appears on that last day, then you also will appear with Him. Not against Him. With Him. Isn't that a good message? So, friends, if you're not hidden yourself in Jesus, do it today. Because on that last day, we're told there actually is no hope for those who have not hidden in Christ. In Revelation, in that really terrifying text that we opened the service with, sorry about that, we're just trying to be thematically consistent, but Revelation 6, 15-17, John writes this about that last day. On that day, then the kings of the earth and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves, right? They threw themselves in with the moles and the bats. And among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks. Okay, you can see it, they're like buried. And they said, okay, we've hidden ourselves, but we aren't hidden enough. And he goes on to say, to the mountains and the rocks, those who are hiding, fall on us and hide us, from the face of Him who is seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Do you see it? We can hide ourselves in Christ today and experience the kind of exaltation with, it, with which there is no parallel. Or we can continue to try to feebly lift ourselves up and make ourselves exalted and not look to God. And on that last day, Reality shows up and we cannot hide ourselves deep enough. There's good news here though. There is good news. The good news of this text that we read in Revelation is is this, hear me. There is still somewhere to hide. Do you hear it? There is still today somewhere to hide. Don't let that last day sneak up on you. There is somewhere to hide today. If you do not know Christ, don't miss this. You can hide yourself in Christ today by turning from living for sin and your idols to making Christ your King. And today is the day to hide because you will not be able to hide on that last day if you have not already been hidden in Him. God's wrath will visit unrepentant sinners who have not put their faith in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, Jesus, He is the rock of ages cleft for you and me. So ask Christ today, let me hide myself in Thee. See, only in Christ can we withstand God's wrath. There is nowhere safe apart from Him. Let's pray.